Welcome to Canucks Talk on another Vancouver Canucks game day right here on your home with the Canucks Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. As always, my co-host Canucks insider Thomas Drance covering the team for The Athletic as well. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. And of course, I am coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. Drancer, south of the border. In Seattle to take in this one between the Canucks and the Kraken. Tonight, he joins us on location. How's it going, buddy? Oh, it's going well. I mean, I, I don't want my masters at the Athletic to hear this, but we've reached that point in the season where you walk into the Canucks locker room and, you know, the conversations you're looking to have, like, really, you're just like, man, I don't even want to bug these guys. You know, like, you're just like, I don't even, I don't even know what there is to say, what there is to ask. Until this team wins a game and gets off the schneid, until that pressure is released, I mean, what can any player say to caption, like, the game plan tonight or, yep. or what matters tonight? Like, there's just there's just nothing to say. And yet, they come into the Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, a gorgeous barn, by the way. Highly recommend that any Vancouverites that haven't managed to get down here for a game yet find an excuse to do so. And they're playing the Seattle Kraken team that looks – significantly upgraded over what they were last year which I don't I don't I don't want to like blow smoke so much as that's not like a high bar right <laughs> it's not a high bar but uh-huh. it's a bar they're leaping over to this point they're faster up front they transition the puck so much better still a little uh, suspicious about that blue line and that and that goal tank, oh yeah but but they've never beat the Canucks they've had four chances to beat they're geographic, and I, you can't see me doing the bunny ears scare quotes, but yep. geographic rival, Yep. right? I don't know that these two teams are actually rivals in any sense, except that they play a three-hour drive from one another yet. But they've never beat the Canucks to this point. And yet, if they can do it tonight, they'll move eight points ahead of them in the Pacific Division standings less than two weeks into mm-hmm. the year. Not less than. Roughly two weeks into the year. Um so this is a weirdly big game. You shouldn't be having big games in the eighth game of the season, no more than you should be having player uh, players-only meetings three games into the season. But this is a big game tonight. Like, the Canucks are going to be in such a hole if they lose in regulation tonight that, you know, not that we are going to be writing anything off after eight games, but we're going to be able to see it from there. We're really going to oh, yeah. be able to see it from there if they come away from an eighth game without putting a number one in the win column. Yeah, they're already six points behind uh, five of the teams, at least six points behind five of the teams in the Pacific Division. Uh, and as you said, if Seattle wins tonight, obviously in regulation, that pushes them all the way up to eight points ahead. And that's you know that's one of the teams that you, you would absolutely figure you have to beat. You have to finish ahead of the standings if you're going to make the playoffs. So it just makes it extraordinarily difficult. I did want to touch on just the rivalry thing. And, you know, we'll talk about this with uh, Allison Lucan a little later. She'll join us from, uh, from Root Sports in Seattle where, of course, she covers the Kraken. It is kind of funny. It seems like events just keep conspiring to squash any potential real rivalry between these two teams, right? I mean, first of all, last year, the Kraken fell fall flat in their inaugural season, right? Vastly underperformed expectations. And then 
very similar to this year, the Canucks at the beginning of last season, you know, all of the drama and all the attention is inward focused. Nobody had time to worry about what the Kraken were doing or how the Canucks were matching up with the Kraken or that rivalry because there was so much drama uh, and so much angst around the team itself, the team up here. Uh, and then, of course, you know, you had the extraordinarily heartwarming Nadia and Red story, and that's just another thing that makes it harder to generate that hate. And it, it still feels, though, like we're we're going through that same process where – it just one team or the other or both is not holding up their end of the bargain to actually put some juice into this rivalry, right? And who knows? Maybe it'll start I would say this both. year. Yeah, right, I would right say now both. it feels like both. Yeah. No, and realistically, it's you can't have a rivalry when both teams are bad. Yeah. You can't even have a rivalry when both teams are below average. A rivalry comes really once you play in the playoffs, once you're both good and you're both jockeying for supremacy in a, in a division, right? And, and until that happens, it's it's all going to be about a, a geographic rivalry, right? Like, there is a bigger rivalry between the Mariners and the Blue Jays by a lot than there is between the Seattle Kraken and the Vancouver Canucks at this juncture. That's going to be true until these are both really good teams at the same time. Yeah. Uh, so that's what it's going to take. I think there's no question about that now that we're you know about to be five games into this uh, Pacific Northwest hockey experiment. But it'll be fun to see the game nonetheless. It's a great place to watch a game too. Like I'm really thrilled to have a chance to watch a hockey game here. Um, but you know, I, I hope it has entertainment value. Yes. Like I hope it's not like the Carolina game that I watched uh, earlier this week, where you know the Canucks went meekly into the night. Uh, I think we need to see something pretty significant from this team in terms of looking to earn a win, right? And not that they haven't played at the level where they probably should have a win or two to this point. I, th I honestly think they have. Oh, but they have yeah. to. But you have to leave no doubt. You have to have a leave no doubter. You can't be like, well, eventually Demko will steal us one. You you can't have a like, well, eventually we'll get four on the power play and win one. Like both of those things are true. Both of those things will happen. But you know when you're. 0 oh, and seven, right? 0 oh, five and two. At some point, like come out, put the boot in the team. Make sure, leave no stone unturned. We haven't seen that performance yet from the Canucks, and that's you know part of the many things around this team that I'm beginning to find quite troubling. Uh, Pre-game coverage tonight will start at six with Dan Reggio and Satyar Shah right here on 6:50. They're on Sportsnet Pacific again at 6:30, so you can catch them on TV as well. Of course, Batch and Randeep will have the call. Seven o'clock puck drop, and then it's Sat and Bick. On the post-game coverage, as always, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. And, you know, to your point about not just coming out and kind of backing into a win or getting an element of luck, right? Like, yeah, hey, they'll take the wins however they can get them. They just need desperately need wins, whatever. If Demko has to stand on his head and get you those first two points, okay, sure, you'll take it. But to your point about actually coming out and really – giving the type of performance that, that says something about the team that can start to get your hopes up a little bit if you're looking for this miracle turnaround already. You know, I also think it's worth noting, we talked a lot about what Patrick Alvin had to say yesterday and, you know, what, what it, uh, you know, implied about the direction of the team, what it didn't imply about the future direction of the team. But I also think it's worth noting that he, again, reiterated all of the many problems he has with the habits of this team, with the individual breakdowns that have led to them losing games, with the fact that, as in his words, you know, the difference right now is that 
their best players need to be their best players. Now, I think you could look at Elias Pettersson and say, well, he's checking that box. But this is the first chance for the rest of the players in that group. And, you know, you can everyone can come up with their own list of who belongs in that uh, you know, that category of the Canucks best players, this is their first chance to come out and say, okay, we heard you again. We're going to try to go prove it. We're going to try to demonstrate those habits to be the best players, to be the guys dragging them into the fight. I feel a little bit ridiculous because it feels like we've had so many of these checkpoints and so many of these kind of gut point or gut check moments for these players, right? Where they've been challenged to do that, but we're here at yet another one. Your GM, yeah, maybe he said a lot of other things too about having confidence in the core, but he also once again said, our best players aren't our best players and we don't have the right habits. We're not playing winning hockey. This is a chance to at least respond to those comments in some way. The, yeah, I mean, you know, the Pedersen play on the Ajo goal is the one that I feel like looms large with this commentary in mind. Right, Jamie? <sighs> That's a very interesting question. That's a very interesting question. Because on the one hand, you can say Elias Pettersson has been far and away the best player. He's Oh, no, and no. It, and Both things can be true. Yeah, oh, 100%, right? Yeah. But it's also, it's interesting because not only has he been the most productive player and the most dangerous player, he's also working really, really hard, right? Like For sure. Maybe outside of that one play, I don't know if you can point to any other play where you look at it and say, oh, man, I really didn't like that. From Elias Pettersson. So, well, is it think, that play, or is there is there is it something else? I'm not entirely sure where I land on that. Yeah, I mean, I just think with the, like my view on that play is don't make a moral weakness out of getting beat by Sebastian Ajo, mm -hmm. right? Like Elias Pettersson is one of 50 guys who will get beat at some point by Sebastian Ajo for a goal this season, right? And a lot of those 50 will be extremely good players. Some of the best defensemen in hockey, some of the best defensive centers in hockey. Um, I just think he lost a battle. I think he lost a race. I don't think it's more than that. For me, it's not anyway. But the, even that play for me looms a little bit large, considering that all of the best player commentary came after it, because before that goal, you would have put Pedersen in a completely different camp, and at least that goal gave you know, gives you material that if you wanted to, you could say that it's, you know, directed at all of your best players, mm. right? Like, mm -hmm. I, that's sort of more than anything kind of how I see that goal interacting with things. Because from a, and we'll talk to Cam Sharon, who has a yep. great piece up at The Athletic, but, uh, I mean, Elias Pettersson's the only guy that's making this work five-on-five five right now. It is wild, the extent to which, uh, you know, I, I was looking at it the other day. With Pettersson on the ice, the Canucks have outshot their opposition by seven, at five on five over the course of the season, in all other minutes they've been outshot by twenty seven. Yeah, right. I mean the the gap for this team between when Pedersen's on the ice and you're looking pretty good versus when Pedersen's not and you're looking like Arizona. I, I mean it's massive. It's a massive difference. Yeah, and it's an interesting question about whether or not Elias Pedersen should be kind of included in those comments from Patrick Alvin, whether he would have intended Pedersen to be included in those comments, because, you know, Quinn Hughes is out right now, right? Brock Bassler's out right now. So if Elias Pedersen isn't part of that, you're basically down to what? JT Miller and Bo Horvat? That, that's who you're kind of pointing the finger at? I don't want to say pointing the finger, but you know what I mean, who you're referencing indirectly uh, with those comments. So I don't know. I mean presumably internally those that's being communicated to the players and they know hey we're expecting even more from you we were unhappy with that play whatever the case is but i uh, 
it just it would be a little odd for me to to be like, you know what? We just really need more out of Elias Patterson. And again, if that because if he was putting up points but kind of cheating and taking plays off and making some defensive gaffes, you could say, okay, hey, the points are great, but we need more of an all-around effort from you. He's given you that all-around effort, right, Trancer? That's the, that's the part where I struggle. It's yeah. not just, oh, man, he's had some really flashy goals. He's working his butt off out there pretty much every shift. Got Winning beat once, a ton of battles. Got yeah. beat once, lost a battle, but as you said, that happens even to the best players in the league. Well, and there's a lot of people culpable on that play, right? I mean, Carolina blows the zone yeah. easily after a face-off win. Um, you know, Tyler Myers mistimes a pinch. Oliver ekman Larson can't keep up with Seth Jarvis. Uh, Thatcher Demko makes the first save but doesn't quite get it squeezed, and then Pedersen loses the battle, and it's a tap-in for Ajo. You, you'd like that play to be far more difficult for Ajo to make, but there's a lot, uh, there's a lot on that video that, you know, is unflattering to a variety of different Canucks players, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it that is what it is. Um, I, I want to zoom out a little bit. Mm -hmm. Can we zoom out a little bit? Let's do because, it. Because, yes, there's a game tonight. There's not that much that's interesting, I don't think, about the Canucks lineup. Uh, Pedersen didn't take the optional um, skate this, uh, this morning, but looked like the Canucks will roll with the same lines that they used to practice the other day. Looked to me like uh, Will Lockwood is an extra. Looked to me like Sheldon Dries will play in the bottom six, uh, consistent with what we saw at practice. I would expect Noah Juleson to be the extra, but uh, but I suppose we'll see. Um, so, you know, not, not a ton that's interesting. Thatcher Demko plays tonight. Yeah, that, uh, that's the most Bruce, interesting decision yeah, to me. And, and the commentary about tomorrow's game as well. In, in well, that. but I think, I mean, Bruce Boudreau said we're day-to-day. -day. Like, he was just not committing to it. I wouldn't take it as him tipping his hand that he's considering playing Demko. He just wasn't prepared to sure. name starters for two games to, right now, you know? So uh, they're taking their best shot to get off the schneid with Demko against the inferior opponent. I would strongly expect Spencer Martin to play against Pittsburgh tomorrow. I think this club has to be uh, trained with their eyes on the long term. You can't be trained on uh, playing do-or-die hockey in game nine. That would be the height of desperation. That would be truly embarrassing for the entire organization to risk Demko's, um, you know, ability to play over the over the long haul this early in the year. Um, but, you know, I honestly didn't take the implication that I think it looks like in copy, like the way that the Canucks right. tweeted it, the way that I tweeted it, makes it look like it's a really serious consideration. In the scrum myself, I thought Bruce was just ducking my question. Was just like, ah, oh, we're just like, you know, we're taking it day to day in terms of those decisions. And and I also want to defend Bruce a little bit. I don't think saying day to day, we live day to day as a coach, is necessarily a bad thing. That's what you need your coach to to do. They're the metronome day to day well, for the activities of your players. Look, Very different from your yes. from what you want your management group but to do, especially when you are over seven and going for wins to start the season, right? Like totally. Yes, I I, I think what you're saying is almost what what Boudreau was trying to communicate was. I am dead focused on winning this game in Seattle tonight, and when that's over with, I will focus on the Pittsburgh game. You know what I mean? 100%. Like, I need these two points. We need these two points. I'm not even thinking about who my goalie is going to be tomorrow yet. Dead on. So, okay, now we've done the game update stuff. There now I can zoom out. There now I go. can zoom out. Because the fact is, is that the micro, do the Canucks win their first game of the year? Like, that's going to be a really interesting thing for us to talk about after it's happened. But the stakes of this game, while high, aren't really interesting at this point, Right. The stakes that are interesting around this team at this juncture in the season are the big picture ones, right? Mm -hmm. Are what does this team do next, right? We, had, we heard from Alvin yesterday. 
Doesn't sound like a coaching change is imminent. Certainly you wouldn't expect the club to do anything dramatic before seeing this team play 20-ish games, right? I mean, that's only fair. That's that, that's not even a big enough sample for me, as you know, right? Like, I want to see 30 mm-hmm. as a general rule. Um, so it doesn't feel like the coaching change is nigh, but obviously that can change if things continue to spiral. It, you know, the big trade stuff, whatever – you know, you could see them doing it so long as they're not paying futures to accomplish it. So long as they're not getting an older player, I, I don't, I don't see a huge problem with them making a small trade just to shake things up a little bit. We could see something like that. Whatever. To me, even that is small stuff. Like, who's coaching this team? Small stuff. Could this team make a trade to shake up the room? Small stuff. What matters here is whether or not this organization decides to try and salvage the creaky edifice that they've built and that has gone winless over seven games, or if at this point, faced with years, decade, a decade of failure, and three additional seasons where the season ended or was functionally over within the first month of the year, if this organization is finally ready to do something a little bit more dramatic and look ahead to the future. And I tweeted out like a joke yesterday where I, I did the uh, Rafiki Lion King clip. Yes. The, like it's it is time. You, you were on a tear then, on Twitter but yesterday. <laughs> I, a little bit, yeah. Well, I you know, I'm at the point where I just think it it shouldn't be it shouldn't be okay to say from the perspective of like the adults are talking here now and a rebuild, it would never fly in Vancouver. Like, that can't be something that anyone feels comfortable saying because it's incredibly stupid, right? Like, it's unjustifiably stupid. It's not something that we should just let pass. It, it cannot it's – it's an unjustifiable take. And I, I got a reply to the Lion King meme that I tweeted that I just want to read here. It's from Ruther Birch, Fine Lumber uh-huh. on Twitter. Uh-huh. He says, I feel like I'm being gaslit every time someone uses the term rebuild when what they really mean – is don't make short-sighted and illogical decisions. Really, they've just been conditioned by years of incompetence into thinking that making smart, long-term decisions is rebuilding. And that's dead on. Like, we need to, you know the Mina Kimes thing about rebranding the the go for two or the go for it on fourth down thing as as aggression? Yeah. Right? We need to rebrand. Like, it's not that the Canucks need to rebuild, although they do. It's that they need to stop making the obvious mistakes that this team's been so intent on making time and time again, right? Like, all we want to see is this team stop signing the 29-year-old forward coming off of a career year. We saw it with Louis Erickson coming off of his 30-goal season. They just made the same mistake again last month with Miller, right? We want to see this team stop acquiring the, you know, old, slow, overpaid defenseman. Like, mm-hmm. we want to see that stop. We've seen that movie too many times. It never ends well. What this market needs this team to start doing isn't, you know, uh, scorched earth. It's not a rebuild. Stop making the obvious mistakes. And yes, part of that means prioritizing the future. It means making some moves with being really, really good in 2026, 2027 in mind, because that's probably how long it's going to take to untangle this mess. But that's what we're talking about here. And to suggest that this club or fans in this market could never tolerate (laughs) behaving that way 
when this team's been the sixth worst team in the NHL for a decade, has only made the playoffs once in the last seven years, hasn't hosted a playoff home date since 2015, and by the way, the building's still full most nights, is just insulting. Like, it's insulting. I think it's ignorant of the actual situation on the ground. And here's the last part. It's not childish to suggest that a rebuild is necessary. Here's what's childish. What's childish is to pretend that in a league with a hard cap and fully guaranteed player contracts, that you can build meaningfully for the future while also competing for the present. It's not possible. It's not possible. The system is not designed for it. And it is childish to behave that way, right? Like it is not how you win in this league. It's not designed to reward teams that desperately flail against their actual circumstances year after year. And so the the question really needs to be reframed. Like if this organization is unwilling or unable to afford rebuilding, then they are unable to afford winning in this league. And considering the value of the of the property itself, that feels like that's on them, not on the fans, not on the media explaining how, how it is. So so I just wanted to say all of that. I needed to get it off my chest. It's been bugging me for a few days, and we're only going to hear more of it over the course of the next month. It's not something we should tolerate. Like Fans shouldn't hear someone say fans in Vancouver cannot tolerate a rebuild and be like, that's an acceptable thing to say. That's smart. That's the adults in the room talking. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's sycophantic. It needs to stop. So I'm uh, I'm going to take this in a bit of uh, an odd direction here, Drancer. But this it popped into my head just while you were talking there and talking about you know stop making the obvious mistakes. It's something I've been thinking about over the last couple of days. Are, are you familiar with the Frozen movies at all, Drancer? I'm guessing oh. I'm guessing no. Why would you guess no? Why? Well, you you don't have kids. I have kids. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I don't have kids, but like. You know, I um, the cold never bothered me anyway. You there know? you go. Like, okay. I'm a big fan. So in, oh, yeah. in Frozen, multiple viewings in Frozen Two, the uh, the climactic song, and this is sung by the the Anna character played by Kristen Bell at her lowest moment. Right? She she thinks she's lost her friends and family. She's confused. She's depressed. She doesn't know what to do. It's called the next right thing, and the lyrics are are very applicable to this situation. It literally oh, are, starts. Are, are you please? Are you please going to do a dramatic reading of Frozen it, lyrics? It literally starts. I, I am so here for this I've let's seen, go i've seen dark before but not like this this is cold this is empty this is numb that could be a text we get in every day during this show <laughs> like literally it could it absolutely yeah. could this grief has a gravity it pulls me down but a tiny voice whispers in my mind you are lost hope is gone but you must go on and do the next right thing that's all we want do the next right thing, right? And it doesn't have to be just stop making the mistakes, put one foot in front of the other. And when you're faced with decisions, when you're faced with pressure points where you have to make a move, just do the next right thing. And as you said, that right thing is focusing, not prioritizing making the playoffs this year, not prior prioritizing making the playoffs next year. It's prioritizing contending beyond that, right? And, you know, we yesterday, especially when we were talking about Patrick Albine's comments, we got we got a lot of people very fired up and you know that's great but we also got some people kind of saying well hey what do you guys expect what do you want what do you, you know they've only been on the months 10 10 uh, on the job 10 months did you expect them to fix the defense already and i want to be very clear no that's not at all what i expect i have no problem no problem whatsoever with a patient approach 
but I just have to know that it's building in the right direction, right? That That's all I want. I want a, an acknowledgement that a new direction is necessary. And as I said, a recognition that making the playoffs this year and next year is less important than what happens after that, okay? And then other than that, I'm, you don't need to fire the coach. That doesn't make any sense right now. He's not the problem. You don't need to, need to make a big splashy trade just so you can say something. You just have to do the next right smart thing as it comes up. That that's what we want to see more than anything else right now. You know what I mean? At, at least at least do no further harm. Yeah. You know? You know like they could make a big splashy trade for Jacob Chicker in tomorrow and I'd be like, "Oh my god, we're not doing this, are we? We're really going to we're really going to watch this team lock up 20 million on the left side of their defense and trade significant futures to get a, a really good player who's often hurt and probably doesn't move the needle considering this team's needs? Like, are we really going to even consider that? You know, like, that's the sort of thing that worries me as, as a next move. Well, something, something that would be in line with this organization, not this management team. I mean, this organization's, you know, uh, preference for the flashy Band-Aid as opposed, to the, as opposed to the disciplined structural work that's actually required. And here's the thing. Okay, let's say you, you know, Patrick Alvin yesterday talked about we need to raise the standard, right? We've got to identify who's going to be part of the solution, all of that. Let's say you identify a player and you say, you know what? This is not our idea of a winning player, but they still have value. We're going to try to trade them. Well, trading that player in and of itself, that's not sufficient because you've got to decide what you're going to target, what you're getting back, right? What are you prioritizing in the return? And for me, it comes down to if you do that, and it seems like a pretty safe bet that at some point they're going to make a trade like that this year. We'll see when exactly it happens, but I wouldn't be surprised to say the least. When you do that, do you prioritize things like future assets, cap flexibility, or do you try to plug a hole in the roster right now, right? Do you say, you know what, we really need that right side defenseman, so maybe the value isn't right, but we're going to go out and we're going to get that player who's, you know, 29 because we think he can help us now. That's going to be the real test for me. I don't need it to be splashy. I don't need them to trade everyone tomorrow. I don't need them to fire the coach, anything like that. But when those decision points come up, they just have to be moving in the right direction. And that is for the future. It's not for this year. It's not for next year. We're going to get into that. With Cam sorry, sorry, Jamie. Go ahead. Go ahead. Jamie, I just want to ask you, just want to confirm – when it comes to Vancouver prioritizing their short-term playoff hopes, are you saying they should let, let it go? Let it go, yes. <laughs> they absolutely should. I'll have, to, I'll have to look at some of the other um, uh, at some of the other Frozen songs <laughs> to see if we can find any more uh, if we can find any more metaphors. Uh, we will get into all of that with Cam Sharon, plus what he has noticed from the Canucks uh, through the first seven games. He had a great piece up about this at the Athletic. Highly recommend uh, that you go check it out. And we'll talk to Cam about it next. It is Canucks Talk Sportsnet six fifty. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Drance. Uh, Drance is in Seattle. I'm coming to you live from the Kintex studio. As always, you can get your thoughts in 650-650. People are responding with uh, plenty of frozen puns now, Drancer, which uh, I enjoy. You can keep sending those in as they relate uh, to the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, of course, it is a game day. Puck drop at 7. Pre-game coverage begins at 6 here. And to uh, to talk a little bit, not so much about tonight's game, but the first seven games of the season and some of the big trends that he has picked up on. Uh, he's a contributor at The Athletic, also doing a f- fantastic job covering the team this year with post-game breakdowns at CamSharon.com. He is Cam Sharon. Cam, thanks for doing this as always. How are you? 
I'm doing uh, fantastic today. How are you today, James? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well. You know, another Canucks game. So there's that. Have you? Uh, what's the like level of regret that you're feeling right now for committing to tracking all of these games? Oof. Um, <laughs> well, the big problem is that I'm doing the Leafs as well, and the Leafs have been on the West Coast this week. So I'm doing two games tonight that are starting at 7 p.m. So that's going to keep me up until five or six in the morning. Uh, but you know, I'm here, I'm, I'm committed to the long haul. I'm not throwing in the towel here and i want to provide Canucks and Leafs fans with the best po- analysis I can possibly give them with uh, data they can't find anywhere else. So I'm going to do that. There you go. We love to hear it. That's inspiring. I love it, Cam. That's fantastic. And, uh, you know, the the single game ones have been really great. And up at The Athletic right now, as I mentioned, there's kind of a compilation of some of your big takeaways of what you've noticed through the first seven games from the Canucks. And, you know, I, I want to start with the defense because I think we've talked a lot about it on the show, even when you've been on in the past. It's a big uh, it's a big focus on your piece. Can you just kind of describe for our listeners, like, what... what I don't, I'm not. I'm trying to even think about the best way to phrase this, but like, what has gone wrong? What is going wrong with the Vancouver Canucks defense that you're noticing uh, in th- through your tracking efforts? Well, they're just not good enough, and they're either there's a combination of they're not good enough, but also they're not really being allowed to skate around the offensive zone and open up shooting and passing lanes for the forwards and the actual players that you want to have the puck on their stick in the offensive zone. So they are not contributing at all offensively. And when I say they're not create, they're not contributing offensively, it doesn't mean they're not contributing offensively relative to what other teams are getting from their back end. No, you were getting zero or one scoring chance comp- contribution per game from the Canucks defense. And it's going to become even more dire as Quinn Hughes exit. And I don't know if this is a philosophical thing, whether the team just doesn't want its defensemen moving around the offensive zone because there's some sort of outdated desire to keep the, you know, oh, your, your, your defense needs to play defense and your offense, your forwards need to play offense. You know, that's not true in 2022. But even so, I don't really know if the Canucks back end really have the ability to move the puck for uh, in, the, in the offensive zone. Um, Oliver ackman Larson to me, has just looked, slow and out of place in every aspect of the game. And it's, it's noticeable in the offensive zone. Uh, Tucker Pullman, he's been in and out of the lineup with injury, but he's, at, he's not contributed to a single scoring chance this season. Noah Juleson, uh, two games, no contributions. Tyler Myers, I think, is a very effective defense. Like, he, you know, there are – he can pick his spots. He can move around the offensive zone. He does have that size. He can kind of cut to the net – he probably does have the ability to create a little bit of gravity and pull uh, forward or, and pull defenders away from away from covering Pedersen and Miller and 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 drawing on him if he's making the right reads. But he's not. He's contributed to two scoring chances all season, and none of them set up with his passing. Like I'm, it's I'm, I'm almost at a loss for words watching this team in the offensive zone work uh, because. You know, I you know I spent eight years with the Maple Leafs, and for the last six years of those, we were pretty good, and we did a lot of fun things in the offensive zone where we worked a lot to use all the space of the of the area to get the puck onto the sticks of our top forwards as best we could, and a lot of that involved, 
you know, defensemen like Justin Hall or Jake Muzzin or whoever taking the puck down low and below the hash marks and looking in front and looking for passing lanes and options. And it's just a better way to create offense. You can't rely on, you can't rely on your forecheck the entire game. You can't rely on being opportunistic and, and the rush, uh, you know, and there being rush chances. Like you need to create, you need your, you need space. You need to create, you need to find a way to get your forwards open. And they're just not doing that. Cam, do you think it's likely that there is something systematic going on? I mean, over the years, Boudreaux's gotten 40-point seasons from everybody, from Mike Green to Jared Spurgeon to Sammy Vatnin, uh, rookie yeah. Cam Fowler, Elias Lindholm. Like, is it possible that it's systems, or, or is it personnel? It's I, – I don't know. And the thing is, like, so far this season, and I, I, I expect this won't continue, but so far the defense has actually kept up with the opposition – when it comes to moving the puck out of the defensive zone with control. So they're not like they're players that aren't overtly bad. I think that there is a personnel issue. Like, I don't think that there's the ability for a player like Ekman Larson to, to do, to play the game as I want it to be played. But I do think that Tyler Myers and Kyle Burroughs do kind of have that skill set where they can, can create, in the offensive zone and where they could be a little bit better in that regard. But I'm not seeing any defensemen other than Quinn Hughes really go below the hash marks and they're just kind of filling it at the point. And, you know, there could be, there, you know, it might not be a systemic thing, but it could be a more mental thing where you're giving up so much, you're kind of playing not to lose rather than playing to win. But you know, the way that you're going to lose more games is playing not to lose. So it could be a mental hang-up. It could be an ability thing. It could be systemic. I don't know. But all I can tell you, Tom, is that they're not creating enough. What are you seeing from the Canucks in terms of their ability to move the puck out from the back end? Because to me anyway, you know, I don't see a lot of, like, this team regrouping and attacking as a five-man unit and yet, in your data set anyway, that doesn't appear to be as big an issue as their play in the offensive end of the rink. What, what are you seeing from the puck moving? Side? So, there could be, there, you know, I think why I'm saying it's not as big of a concern is because they're keeping up with their opposition in that respect. However, you know, I, like their team numbers are lower than the Leafs, and I consider the Leafs a fairly good puck-moving team from the back end. So... I think I think it's a combination of they, you know, their their forecheck has been good enough to disrupt enough of the of the opposition that it's kind of allowed the Canucks D to not be as as exposed or where the numbers aren't as you know that it's not giant percentage swings between the two. So it could be a little bit of that, but I think that there's also been like you know, fairly decent tendency to support sometimes uh, with the forwards. I think that they aren't really looking for home run stretch passes. They're kind of allowing some easier uh, opportunities for, for the players to move the puck. But I also think that they have some reasonably good skaters back there. Like, you know, Riley Stillman's hurt right now, but when he came into the lineup, like I didn't mind him. I didn't mind watching him. He wasn't, he wasn't, 
he didn't really show up as advertised as just like this big, you know, just defense only hit a guy sort of player. He was, a, you know, he was making some fairly good reads. He wasn't really moving the puck with a lot of volume, but he was putting it where it's, where it was supposed to be or thereabouts. And I think with, he, you know, he's been doing that caliber. I quite like, like, I think that they, they've kind of held on, even though, you know, they're, they might just be outperforming their own individual talent levels and, and the dam is about to break. But yes, I, I'd say, it should, you know, their ability to move the puck from the back end should be a concern, especially since the lot, you don't just want to hang on with your opponents. You want to be better than them. And they're not better than them at the, at very, least, at the very best. They're equal. Cam, you know, you mentioned uh, Oliver ekman Larson and how he pr- might not just straight up have the capability to really provide the type of offense that you're talking about. And I-, I know there was some talk in the summer from the Canucks about they thought there was more offensive upside there. We haven't seen that with OEL. But I think the biggest concern for me, and I know it showed up in your numbers as well, has been his play in his own end. And specifically, uh, you wrote about the degree that he's turning the puck over. How much of a concern is that for you, especially, you know, when you look at how this team is structured, just like they did last year, they were probably relying on all of Reckman Larson to play an awful lot of tough minutes for them this year. Yeah. And, and now that now Quinn Hughes is out, it's, you know, that OEL is your, your one LD for, I don't know how long Hughes is going to be out for. Like the, the, the way that the way that the Canucks have framed that injury update isn't, uh, you know, that should be pretty concerning. <laughs> um, but yeah, like it's not just the fact that OEL isn't get turning the, or is turning the puck over a lot. It's that he's just, playing not getting to pucks if you're because i'm i'm counting when when the opposition dumps the puck in and you have a race for it and oel is the defensive player uh going for it i don't have the number exactly handy in front of me but i know that he's the worst on the canucks at actually getting to that puck so it's a problem of he's not getting to that puck and when he does get to it first he's also just throwing it up the wall or he's giving it right to someone and it's he's he's not he's not good enough for the nhl right now and like if he if he weren't on that contract he'd be on waivers it's it's i i I don't want to like continually harp on the guy but i think that he's i think he right now is just the personification of of basically all the canucks major issues where you know you talk about just like bring the trade to bring him here was was bad team building what he's doing is just not productive on the ice and all the thing all the things that that the Canucks are kind of weak at and have been weak at over the last five or six years, it all kind of distills into, into what he is and what he represents. So, you know, I don't want to harp on the guy. I don't want to be the guy that comes on the radio and, and yells at, at players. I, I think I should be beyond that, but I've tracked this game for 17 or I tracked this team for seven games and I, I've seen nothing out of OEL that would make me feel confident in him going forward. Uh, in conversation with Cam Sharon, contributor at The Athletic, regular here on Canucks Talk, and uh, also you can follow his work at Um let's, let's turn to a little bit of good news. I think we'll get back into some more bad news later, but we'll do a little bit of good news because uh, Thatcher Demko has been the subject. I know from, for we got a lot of texts from our listeners about, hey, what's going on with Demko? You know, he hasn't, how much has that contributed to not winning a game? Look, my stance is still he's Thatcher Demko. He's going to be really good. What are the numbers telling you about Demko's performance? so far well yeah and that, like i've i've been i've talked about this a little bit over the last couple of days and the response i get is oh his save percentage is bad and his goals against average is high okay great those are two numbers that absolutely tell me nothing about a goalie's performance um save percentage 
I think is better. Like save percentage is better than goals against average, but save percentage does not predict future save percentage. It's it 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 matters for winning. It's not a good predictive stat, and frankly, there are no statistics that are publicly available or even privately available, in my opinion, that can optimally predict how goalies are going to play. It frankly doesn't exist. It's such a weird position because, you know, it can be a successful stop, so to speak. You know, it can be a successful play if the opponent beats you and hits the post. Like, that's not successful, but basically, like, omitted. Or, you know, there was one play uh, in, a, in a Leafs game the other night where Ilya Samsonov was beaten by a shot, puck was trickling towards the, was trickling towards the line, and it was cleared away from the goal line. Like, that goes down as a save. That shouldn't be a save. He didn't get to it. So basically, I'm kind of relying on the eye test here, and I'm not, I'm not seeing a goalie that's struggling. I'm not seeing a goalie that's spilling rebounds. I'm not seeing a goalie that's having difficulty finding his net or, or, being, uh, or not being assertive in his crease or not moving well and not seeing the puck. I'm not really seeing that. Like, we're not seeing long shots beat him from distance. We're not seeing deflections get by him. He seems like he's stopping a lot of good scoring chances every single game. What I'm finding is that if you really break down the situations and find the extra goals where that Demko's allowed, they have come from uh, four-check situations, which is basically right after a turnover. And I looked at, at, at the three goals that, that Demko's allowed that came immediately following uh, Canucks' turnover, and we're looking – it was the, the Connor McDavid rush in Edmonton, uh, there was Lars Eller's hitting Lars Eller's uh, goal that would rebound it off the back wall in Washington, and mm. that breakdown with uh, Ekman Larson and Rathbone running into each other uh, in the Buffalo game. Like none of those are stoppable shots. I'm sorry. Uh, maybe one of them you would love to get a good you would love to get a save, but the chances that the Canucks are allowing are just so stark. Like they're giving up a lot of rush chances. They're giving up a lot of of chances off turnovers. And I'm sorry, but Demko can't stop everything here. His safe percentage is going to take a hit because the situations the Canucks are allowing are, uh, are, are just such difficult, uh, just so difficult. And if you're all you're looking at is safe percentage or goal saves above expected, you might say, Oh, Demko's the reason the Canucks are struggling. He is not. I don't know. You cannot watch seven games of this team and tell me that Thatcher Demko is the problem. I'm sorry. And I know I said on Twitter that I was going to fire Drance up, but that was because, <laughs> that's because I knew I was going to get fired up talking about this team because I've committed <laughs> to watching 82 games of this and they have, they're showing me so little and, you know, Demko's playing about as well as he can under the situations. He's not been, he's not been 1993 Patrick Waugh, but if you need 1993 Patrick Waugh to win games, you, you know, it's, it's not the problem. <laughs> the uh, the thing about thinking really seriously about this team is this is a natural reaction to it, Cam. This is what I've been um, going through for the last three years. This is a this is a completely natural and normal reaction you're going through. Let's keep it on the positives. Um, <laughs> Even the um, positives are firing me up here, Drance. I know. I'm sorry, bud. The the Elias Pettersson thing, though. You talked at length about how well yeah. Elias Pettersson has played to this point in the season. What are you noticing that's permitting him to make things work for this team at five on five when so little else is? I just think that he and Kuzmenko and Pod Colvin, those are the three players I've I've actually enjoyed watching on this team so far, particularly Pod Colvin. Um, I think that the three of them have some really good chemistry, and they are 
passing to each other at a level that the other lines aren't really passing to each other, if that makes sense. They're kind of finding each other in open space and able to create, you know, and able to, to take advantage of a little bit of space. And that's, that's the thing about hockey is what are you going to do when, when your opponent gives you an inch and you have to turn that inch into a foot. And if they give you a foot, you have to turn that into a yard and you just have to create little pockets of space. And I think that Pod Colson and Pedersen are doing a good job at kind of finding when the other is just a little bit open and they're, and they've been hitting that gap. Pedersen, I think is the best on the Canucks at when you give him that room, what's he going to do with it? He's going to take it forward. He's going to make a move, you know, do your deke, do your deeks, PD. And he's, he's getting to that space. They're creating, they are creating like, uh, you know, oh man, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it feels like they're creating 10 scoring chances a night just from that line. Um, and, and a lot of it is due to what they're doing in the neutral zone. A lot of it is even due to what they're doing in the defensive zone where they're just, when they have, a, when they have a little bit of space to move, they're going to move the puck and they're going to create something out of it. They're not letting the play down their stick. So it's, it's been really fun to watch those three, uh, particularly Pedersen and Pug Colson. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I was a little bearish on Kuzmenko at the start of the year. I'm not, I'd have to see a few more games, you know, before being entirely convinced that he can, that he kind of belongs in that echelon, but it's been, it's been positive and it's good to know that, uh, that when this team eventually rebuilds, because it's going to have to happen that Pedersen and Pod Colson, you know, they're hopefully here for the long haul. They're still young and there's, I consider them, uh, they're going to be key players on the next great Canucks team, whenever that is. Let's let's look ahead. Now, I know your numbers are back-facing, but there's utility in them in terms of what comes next, right? Mm-hmm. What are you seeing from the Canucks overall that sort of applies? Like, I keep saying, for example, uh, that in my view, there's too much talent up front and Demko's going to get hot for weeks or months. And, you know, it probably ends up, even with the hole they've dug themselves early, with the Canucks finishing in the mid-80s. Does that match what you're seeing, or are you seeing more to be concerned about than that sort of scenario that I consistently am painting here? You fading my take, bud? That's tough for me to answer because I haven't really looked at it in the whole big picture thing to to know – you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at a team that is being outplayed by their opponents by about a goal, about, by about a goal's worth every single game. And I know, and they've been playing in some close games that obviously they're going to win a few of those as the season chugs along. But yeah, like, you know, I think at the start of the year, we, we kind of, I think I, when I was talking to you guys, we were kind of pegging them between 86 and 96 points. But I, I was more, you know, I think that the, the, the low end for this team. I think that they had a, a much lower floor than they had a high ceiling. Like it was more likely that they'd be 10 points worse than 10 to one, than 10 points better, but particularly because when they have success, it's, it's based on shaky things like, you know, um, you, you know, just, just that 1993 Patrick wall level goaltending from Demco. Um, right. So I, I don't, yeah, like, you know, they could go 500 between now and the, and the end of the year. It's obviously not going to be enough for the playoffs, but that, that, that puts them what in the, in the puts them in the high seventies at this point. I guess it's not like they are they're so far behind that the playoffs might be out of the question already. I, I don't like I don't know if they if they even hit ninety points at this point just because of the hole they've already dug themselves. I wouldn't be surprised if they went five hundred between now and the end of the year. But they you know they're going to need they're going to need a seven game win streak or winning seven of eight or eight of nine or something to really pull back into the race. 
and they're running out of room to do that almost instantly. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of out on the playoff calculations right now uh, because it, <laughs> they're going to have to they're going to have to play at a at above a hundred point pace to do that. I think even when we were looking at best case scenario at the start of the season, th- th- that I never saw that for them. So, right, you know, absent like a major trade where you get where you can get a difference maker from some team that's for some reason doing that, you know, it's not unheard of. But I also don't think that the Canucks should be really selling the farm to look for that difference maker right now. Cam, always appreciate the time. I hope uh, that at least Elias Pettersson keeps providing the entertainment game in, game out for you. <laughs> um, yeah, well, <laughs> I, 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 might, I might do the Canucks game earlier because uh, both games are starting at the same time tonight. Uh, the Canucks were half an hour later when they played the Hurricanes, so that was my second game. I might do it earlier so I don't have to have that 3 a.m. coffee to stay awake. There you go. That's a good plan. We'll talk next week, man. Yeah. That is Cam Sharon. Again, you can find the work he's doing and the tracking he's doing at camsharon.com. Um, I, I think, you know, he's tracking the uh, the microstats and the the entries and the exits. We're tracking, like, his descent into madness as he covers the Canucks this year. His descent <laughs> is... into, like, a classic sports radio guy. <laughs> Colonel Sharon, right? He was going, like, Colonel Kurtz. <laughs> you know, yes. like, this is straight yes. up heart of darkness Cam Sharon's descent into madness is great. He loves the smell of napalm in the morning, by the way. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, boy. Anyways, that was fantastic. Really enjoyed that insight the best. Uh, from Cam as we get more and more of a sample size uh, based on his tracking from the Canucks. And again, you can find his latest piece on it up at The Athletic right now. We'll turn our attention to the Canucks opponent tonight, the always fantastic Allison Lucan from Root Sports in Seattle, doing a great job covering uh, the Kraken. will join us next to talk about Seattle's team in the game tonight. Uh, That's coming up on Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk, second hour of the show here. It's Jamie Dodd. It's my co-host, Thomas Drance, who is live in Seattle uh, ahead of tonight's game between the Kraken and the Canucks at Climate Pledge Arena. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. As mentioned, Drancer is in Seattle. I am coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Keep your thoughts coming in ahead of tonight's game, but... As mentioned, we will now uh, connect with Allison Lucan. She covers the Seattle Kraken, does a fantastic job of it for Root Sports in Seattle, and she now joins us on the show. Allison, how are you? Hey, I'm great. How are you guys doing? Uh, well, we're doing well. I mean, you know, it's uh, it feels <laughs> yeah, like the more things. yeah, the more things change, the more things stay the same up here. But uh, you know, hey, maybe there'll be a win tonight. I'm sure they'll get a win at some point, and that will help things uh, significantly. But I wanted to ask you, just kind of, we'll get into a lot of the nitty gritty with Seattle, but just kind of big picture. You know, eight points through eight games. And it just feels, viewing it from afar, that there's a lot more optimism and excitement related to the team's performance than we really ever got. You know, obviously, it was the inaugural year last year, so there's that excitement baked in. But in terms of what we're seeing on the ice, there seems to just be a lot more excitement around this team right now. Oh, 100%. And I think it's a couple things. It's, first and foremost, it's that the team is better. Um, and they're better in a way that I think is 
generating excitement, which is offensive, right? They're scoring more goals. They have more talent up front. And I think that's easy, an easy way to get fans excited and involved. And I think the other thing is that with COVID restrictions loosening around the world, that people are now starting to get to know this team and, and the team is able to market itself better and market their players. And so that underlying connection is happening as well, but it is for sure tied to a better overall start and, and higher le- higher end talent on the ice. Yeah, and you mentioned specifically offensively, and just looking at the lineup, and you see, you know, the two new additions of Andre Burakovsky uh, and Oliver Bjorkstrand, and just those two kind of middle six wingers, you know, not superstars, but they give so much extra depth to that lineup and the ability for, you know, three lines to be dangerous offensively. How have both of those players fit in with the Kraken so far? You nailed it. It's it's allowing the players that were already here to slot into roles that better utilize their talent, right? It's that kind of a depth move, and it's strengthening that top six and not asking too much of players who maybe shouldn't have been in those spots all the time. And, you know, Burakovsky has been great, um, huge part of the transition game improving, and you're seeing both of these players make an impact on the power play as well, which we all know is where you highlight and showcase your offensive talent and where it can shine if it's really at a level it needs to be. So they're helping there. I think the other thing that's really interesting is that Oliver Bjorkstrand has been on the wing of Alexander Wenberg um, his entire tenure here thus far. And those two were on the Columbus Blue Jackets before they played together a little bit, but not like this. And there seems to be a synergy happening that's also bringing a new level to Wenberg's game. And I think that's a big part of what Bjorkstrand is doing in addition to what he does on his own. Allison, we're spending a lot of time talking about two topics that I want to address quickly and then ask you about as it pertains to the Kraken. The first off, team speed, Canucks struggle to handle it. What has been the difference in the Kraken's transition game this year? Because they look so much more sharp and so much more dangerous off the rush. Yeah, I think what they're doing is, you know, it's, it's that whole cliche of play faster, right? Doesn't necessarily mean skate faster. Um, and they're doing a lot more with uh, not even a total stretch pass, but a more south to north pass with skaters who are able to anticipate. And again, when we talk about kind of that entire talent group taking a step forward, those passes are connecting now, right? And so when the passes are connecting, you're more likely to try it again. And then it just continues to build on itself. There was a beautiful chip pass by Brandon Tanev um, up to create a goal off the stick of Morgan Geeky in last game and it's plays like that and then additionally I already cited this one but you know Burakovsky is just so strong transitionally he'll he'll just pull through with that puck on his stick Um, and Oliver Bjorkstrand is also kind of a possession monster in that way he's not going to necessarily skate through all three zones but he can really hold on to the puck and get it where it needs to be so the talent and then the way they're playing passing and passing more effectively is giving them a lot more more off the rush. Additionally, the Canucks are generating next to nothing offensively <laughs> from from the back end, from the back yeah. end in particular. Um, you know, they're they're widely outchanced in that margin. Defenders just aren't activating, aren't aren't effectively supporting the attack. And meanwhile, the Kraken, uh, you know, a, a team for whom defense was seen as an Achilles heel going into the season, six goals already from the back end. What is going on? <laughs> well, you know, I think that. Um... The pairs are settling down a little bit. They've been consistent um, through all of the first games, and they're going to hold true tonight against Vancouver. So I think you first and foremost get some chemistry that was not able to develop 
last year. And I think the pairings are a little bit more balanced. Um, you, you need no, look no further than the top pair, which is Vince Dunn and Adam Larson. And those two know exactly what the other is doing. They know that Adam Larson is going to play that primarily defensive role and Vince Dunn is going to jump up into the play. Um, so I think that it's that comfort level of providing support. And this is an active defense. They want to be active. Jamie Alexiak was talking about that to us this morning after morning skate saying that this team believes that offense comes off of an entire five-man unit. And so that when the defense can join in, they're absolutely going to, and they have the green light to do so. Uh how much of a, have a, has a difference has uh, Justin Schultz made on that blue line, Allison? Because, again, you know, it's easy to kind of look at it. And, oh, yeah, you know, veteran defenseman, not not necessarily uh, expected to be a high performer. But as we're seeing with the Canucks, just the, the total dearth of guys who can effectively move the pucks, puck makes such a big difference. And that's certainly something that Schultz can still do well. What, what kind of impact has he had? Yeah, I think you're seeing him for the most, for the biggest part, I should say, making that point on the power play. And I think that, you know, this, again, this is a group that's really barely been together if we look at the other teams in the league. And so you have someone like Justin Schultz who comes in. His demeanor is so calm, uh, a quiet confidence. I think that that is received well in the room. And then that carries over to how he plays on the ice. He's so comfortable with the puck on the power play. He distributes it well. He moves it well. And I think that gives the rest of the unit that he is on the confidence to execute within their roles. And I just talked about the, the quality of the matching and the pairs and Schultz is playing primarily with Alexiak. And again, I think when you know that you have someone who knows what they're doing, who's been around for a while, who's going to be right there behind you in a more defensive role, like Schultz has been with that solid first pass that gives Alexiak the freedom to play a little bit more up if he so chooses. In conversation with Allison Lucan from Root Sports in Seattle, talking about the Seattle Kraken ahead of their game against the Canucks tonight here on Sportsnet 650. And, you know, one of the debates we've been having is, okay, the Canucks, they, they're struggling to move the puck. They, they can't get offense from their blue line. How much of that is personnel versus tactical coaching decision? And, and you know, I think in hockey, look, the answer is always going to be, well, it's a little bit of both. But I'm curious right. to have your perspective, you know, Dave Haxtell was under the microscope a little bit. Some would even say maybe on the hot seat a little bit coming in to this season. Has he adjusted what he's asking the players to do? Or is it simply a case of, as you said, look, they have personnel who are more capable of playing this way this year? Yeah, I mean, I, of course there have been tweaks to the system, but um, we're not seeing anything revolutionary per se. I, I, I would put, a, not to take anything away from the coaching staff, but I do <laughs> think that when you have the personnel to, to execute as you want, and then again, have that success, which breeds to that confidence, it makes it a lot easier for your team to look good. They've tweaked some things, I do think, again, on the transitional game because they have the talent to do so. And, and to be honest, there's still some work to do on the penalty kill. That hasn't been a shining star for this group. So the coaching staff is probably still scratching their heads a little bit with that. Um, but, yeah, I think the overall step forward of this group talent-wise and comfort-wise is, is the main ingredient there. Allison, with the Canucks on a losing streak and the market frothing <laughs> over the subject of a rebuild, right? Um, it, it feels like it feels like if there was a night that Jared McCann was going to have a statement game, it might be this evening. And yet, and yet, while he's been productive, the ice time has been prescribed. I, I think it's fair to say. What's going on there? Where is his game at at the moment? 
Yeah, I mean, it, and it's it's shocking. We actually were just talking about him uh, before the last game. You know, goals in his last three games, he's actually shooting more. He's generating more offensive quality from the shots that he's taking, and he's drawing more penalties. Uh, to your point in what is, if you looked at the lineup, a, a third-line role. And I think that a lot of this has to do with, you know, I mentioned the Wenberg and Bjorkstrand pairing and finding the winger there. Uh, right now, that's where Burakovsky is slotting in. They want Matty Beneers to be a top two center. So he's between two veterans in Schwartz and Eberle. So I think it's that because of the demands of those two lines, this is where Jared McCann ends up. Do they continue to tinker with that? I could see that. Um, and he is with Yanni Gord, which I think is a nice little push and pull of two different types of talent there. Um, but he ends up here as he does, but he's still finding a way to produce and he's contributing on the power play, which as we all know, if you can do that, that's a huge boost. Um, I'll be curious to see if he moves around because I wouldn't be against that, but I think those are the reasons why he's where he is in terms of time and lineup. Allison, I want to ask you this in, in part because I could listen to you break down technical aspects of hockey all day. You're distractingly <laughs> good, but... <laughs> The Kraken, I, I've been watching them play this year, and I've mostly been impressed, but they are funneling a lot of offense through the point still. Um, is that part of why the defenders are scoring, or do you think there's another level this group can hit, perhaps as they you know, continue to build some chemistry with how, how many new guys they have in the top nine? Yeah, you know, definitely. I would love to see them push play, you know, south of the dots a little bit more. And um, this, you know, we talk about coaching systems. This was obviously a big look of, of the Dave Hackstall systems last year is, you know, get the puck in from the point and then see what happens. Um, so I would love to see them push down further. I think, again, when you look at some of the passing that you can now get from, again, a, a revitalized Winberg and Andre Burakovsky, this team might start to pressure down low more and create more of those, you know, chances where the pass comes across the slot or you're driving in with possession net front like a Ryan Donato maybe can with the right line mates. So th that's still happening. I think that's, again, a hallmark of what this team is being asked to do. But I think they're starting to find comfort with carrying the puck themselves down low and creating high-danger chances in a different way. A couple more minutes here with Allison Lucan from Root Sports in Seattle. Um, look, we all know what happened in the crease for the Kraken last year. The record looks a lot better this year, but the goaltending numbers uh, still leave a little bit to be desired, at least the kind of, you know, the, the headline numbers. How much of a concern lurking in the background is goaltending still for this team? Yeah, I mean, it's a question for sure, if we're being honest. You know, in the shame of what is going on here, Chris Drieger obviously is out for the start, the bulk of the start of the season with that knee uh, injury. And, and Philip Grubauer comes back and finally has what I thought was his best game this season in Colorado, and that's when he goes out, doesn't, isn't able to finish the game with a lower body injury. Martin Jones has been more than serviceable. He's The way he plays is, I think, giving his team a lot of confidence. There's not a lot of extraneous motion there. There's a lot of good freezing the puck and just cool, calm, collected energy coming from him, which I think allows the skaters to continue to feel free to execute. Um, but now, you know, Joey Decord is the backup, um, and that's a guy who's still green. He's seen five games of action in the NHL, but not a ton of success there yet for him. Uh, they want play in net to be better. And I think that, you know, they brought in a new goaltending coach this summer with Steve Breer. I think he's actively working with the entire group um, to make them. So we're seeing some small changes, but I really hope that when Grubauer is able to come back, that what we started to see there in Colorado is the trend of what's coming and not a flash um, before 
there's reversion back to the to what last season was about. Just before we let you go, Allison, do you have a sense of uh, of what the future might hold for Shane Wright? You know, obviously out of the lineup, he's, when he has been in the lineup, hasn't played a ton. Is this uh, is it back to junior uh, at some point in the near future for Shane Wright? Yeah, we actually have a story coming out about this uh, tomorrow. I, you know, I talked with Ron Francis and Dave Hackstall about this quite a bit, and both of them will say that the ice time is not where they know it should be and where they want it to be. They, if he's in, they want him to be playing. 10 to 12 minutes a night, um, and that's not happening. So, But they also admit, you know, this is a player who's at the youngest age you can be to come into the NHL. We all know how the CHL agreement mm-hmm. handcuffs teams in this sense. Um, he's here now, and they're working actively with him to bring some of the skills face-offs, um, plays off the boards, up to a level where he isn't taken advantage of at the NHL level. And that's not to say this player is not top caliber, it's just it's such a huge step for him from where he was. So they're working with him to do that. You know, this is a front office that is always going to look at, you know, is this a Leon Dreisaitl situation where he ends up being able to get back to a team that's going to compete for a Memorial Cup? Then maybe this is a different conversation. Um, but for right now, the plan is they put him into opportunities where they feel he can be successful. They're working a ton with him off the ice. The, the kid is being a sponge. He is on board. They're communicating with him. Everyone is aware of the plan, um, and they'll continue to make sure that they're putting him in the best spot to succeed. And if that ends up being the CHL, I, I, I have no doubt they would entertain that conversation and handle it the right way. Allison, we always really appreciate the time. Uh, that was fantastic, as it always is with you. Enjoy the game tonight, and hopefully we can chat again soon. Sounds great. I hope you go too. have a great rest of the day. Thank you. That is Allison Lucan, who, of course, covers the Kraken. Uh, for Root Sports in Seattle and uh, just in general. You know, she's focused on Seattle now, but uh, one of the sharpest hockey analysts out there. If you're not already following her on Twitter, you can follow her at Allison L, and I highly recommend uh, doing so, Drancer. I'm dazzled. Like, honestly, I find Allison dazzling. Just her ability to distill Mm -hmm. data, but without talking about the data, just talking about the game in, in this extraordinarily smooth clinical insightful way I, I, honestly I'm, I'm just like my jaws on the ground I'm trying to pick it up here it's uh she's amazing yeah uh and really great insight into what to expect out of the uh the Seattle team obviously you know playing with a lot more confidence goaltending still an issue but you just you know you heard her talk about the speed and the impact of Burkowski and, and Bjorkstrand and it's going to be a major challenge uh, for the Canucks tonight, I did want to look at some of the the odds from PlayNow.com on this game tonight, and uh, I'll just quickly refresh to make sure I'm getting the latest information uh, for everyone. But as of right now, uh, the Canucks, yeah, so it's still the same. Canucks are plus one ten to win. The Kraken are minus one thirty. So Kraken very slight favorites in this one, but notable that the Canucks are, you know, as they're desperately looking uh, to get that first win of the season, are underdogs on the road in Seattle. I would very much expect them to be underdogs again uh, tomorrow night at home. So that's uh, that's the overall money line for the game. The other one that stood out, go ahead. Have they, been, have they been favored? They were favored in their home opener, and they were favored against Philadelphia. Yes. Were they favored against Columbus? I don't think so, because it was... I don't a, think they I, were. I don't think they were, because it was the second of a back so so one thing to keep in mind and i always like to track this right um obviously the the books aren't everything the goal is to attract equal action on Mm -hmm. both sides but it still is telling like for all that this team came into this season with high expectations for all that we might talk about that 
you know, this team has only been favored in two of seven or two, two of, of eight, eight now. now. Two of eight. I mean, that's an indictment. You know, like that's an indictment. That's an objective data point about what the market thinks, or not the market in Vancouver, the general betters market, people with skin in the game think of this team. And this is kind of consistent with where they were at last year, where like in the first 25 games, they were favored in like eight of them, right? And they'd only won seven, but it was like, yeah, that's about what Vegas thinks they should have done. Um, and sort of speaks to, too, you know, the the directionlessness that, that we're talking about and really pounding the table about on an, on an everyday basis now that kind of needs to be amended in a more significant way. Anyway, back to the odds. Yeah, and the other <laughs> <laughs> the other one I'm looking at, well, I'm looking at two things. So I'm going to kind of, if I'm trying to like map out how I think this game is going to go, I'm going to bet on two things from the Canucks side that I think have a good chance of rebounding and establishing the type of performance we would expect of them, right? And one is Thatcher Demko and the other is the power play. So on Thatcher Demko, I'm going to go with the total game total under 5.5, which is kind of a modified total. So under 5.5 at plus 135. I like Thatcher Demko to have a big game tonight. couple days off. You know, yeah, Seattle's playing better, but it's still, you know, they don't have the, uh, the Connor McDavid, the Kirill Kaprizov, those types of players who have really, really burned the Canucks this year. So I like that, the under for, you know, Demko to shut the door uh, and that to contribute to the under. And the other one I'll look at, as I said, the power play. Uh, Bo Horvat total power play points over 0.5, so just has to notch one at plus 162. Eventually, the power play is going to cash in a couple times in a game, or at least once in a game. Horvat is a huge part of that. Uh, I like him to get involved on the man advantage tonight as well. I really like Bjorkstrand shots on goal over two and a half. Sure, 1.66 odds. I really like that. That guy shoots uh, without a conscience. You know, like in a good way. And then I, I'm still a firm believer so long as, um, you know, it hasn't paid off of late. Like, it hasn't paid off for two games. But I'm still a firm believer that so long as Quinn Hughes is out of the lineup, one of your best Canucks bets is Oliver ekman Larson over 0.5 total points, 1.8. That's one of the best bets out there. It's going to be on the power play a ton. Uh, the Kraken, as Allison said, uh, can sprout some leaks, four on five. Ekman Larson over 0.5, 1.8 odds. I love that. I love that bet. I think I think if you're if you're a, bet, a Canucks better, I honestly would be taking that every game. Yeah, and I will say also if you want to juice it a little bit, you can go to um, Oliver Ekman Larson power play points, which I think uh, just I lost here for just a second, but I believe it's plus two twenty five for power play points, just to to uh, register one on the power play uh, for yeah, Oliver like Ekman Larson. Too. Yeah, so that that one stands out to me because you know as we talked about with Cam earlier, it hasn't been a lot of offense at even strength from. OEL, but he is going to be on that power play. And as I said, I like the power play uh, to get going at some point here. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, you can get your thoughts in. Dan in Fort St. John says, Boo, only losers bet the under. Who wants to root for no goals? Hey, if you bet, if you bet under 5.5, you can root for five Canucks goals. And if that's your Demko shutout, that sounds pretty fun to me. Look, I get it. It's not, it's not the most fun to bet the under, but there's still a path to an exciting Canucks game there. I'm a big fan of under bets. Of course, as you a general are. rule. Of course, yeah, you as are. a general rule, I love it. I love it. And uh, yeah, I had the under yesterday in Milwaukee, uh, Brooklyn, um, and uh, and they like both missed like twelve consecutive shots. So you know, six minutes into the game, it's like five 
five total points on the board and I'm it's like the they're already offering me a 90% payout I'm like hey, this is the best <laughs> did you see that um something like like 95% of the handle on the Ben Simmons total points was on the under and he didn't even come close to hitting the over oh, just man. like <laughs> everybody's like yeah no this guy's not scoring and they are correct (laughs) Uh, anyways enough Uh, about that Uh, this is Canucks talk of course on Sportsnet 650 we'll take an early break we'll get back into the conversation lots of great texts came in earlier when we were talking about kind of big picture direction things with this team so we'll get into some of those comments Uh, if you have questions or thoughts about the game tonight you can hit us up as well final segment of the show coming up it's Canucks talk Sportsnet 650 What a juxtaposition. <laughs> what a juxtaposition from producer Dom there. Uh, for our live listeners, yeah, a little taste of, uh, of Frozen 2, the next right thing there, uh, won't be available to our <laughs> podcast listeners, unfortunately. Will be no. cut out of the of the podcast. But hey, a little a little Easter egg for everyone listening live there, Drancer, what, yes. What other Disney quotes um, tie into well, the Canucks? So think? I did realize that maybe not great, because that, that's the final song of Frozen 2. I did realize the first song of Frozen 2 is uh, is entitled Some Things Never Change, <laughs> which <is> maybe <laughs> a less hopeful... <laughs> Maybe a less hopeful omen for the uh, for the Vancouver Canucks, and of course, I got a lot of after that segment. You know, got a lot of um, uh, oh, you want to you want to rebuild? Let it go, Jamie. Let it go. So I got a yes. lot of that from our listeners as well. Obviously, yeah, fair enough. Um, I don't know. I was like, I was trying to think like, what what's what's a Canucks parable that we can take from Phil Collins' Tarzan classic? <laughs> You'll be in my heart. <laughs> I'm not sure. Anyway, I, am I think we, I think we sure. need to move on from this. Yes, we will move on. We will absolutely <laughs> Rapidly. move on from that. Um, so, you know, in that context, and uh, of course it is Canucks game day, 7 o'clock puck drop. You'll be able to hear full pregame coverage starting at 6 here on Sportsnet 650. But, you know, I, look, I was, I was bringing up the, the Frozen song and the lyrics in the context of, well, what is next for the Canucks? And not in kind of... Like partly in the big picture sense, but also in the in the here and now, right? In the immediate future, what is next? What needs to happen to kind of start rebuilding some sort of confidence in the direction of this team? Because I think it's fair to say, Drancer, just based on our interaction with our listeners, what you see on social media, that you know, the confidence might have started very high with this management group, but it has waned. I don't think that is. Uh, is you know an aggressively kind of hot take or anything like that. I think that's just kind of what we're seeing in reaction from the market. And you know, I'm curious to hear from our listeners again. Six fifty, six fifty is the Dunbar Lumber Tax line. What do you want to see in the here and now, right? In the next few weeks, the next month, something like that, that would start to rebuild your confidence uh, in the direction of the Vancouver Canucks. And one of the points I was trying to make is, you know. I don't need to. I don't need them to come out and say, you know, these are the five players we're going to build around. We're never trading them. We're going to trade everyone else, and we're going to we we are guaranteeing that we'll compete for a Stanley Cup in in the year twenty twenty seven. All right, you know, I, I think sometimes we get way too caught up in timelines and labels, and oh, you have to have this really detailed plan. Because things change. You got to be flexible. You got to be open to different circumstances. Something will happen that you don't expect and you have to be able to react on the fly. You can't be married to the plan that you laid out. So for me, it's not it's not so much that I need the timeline. I need them to get rid of all these guys who aren't contributing right now. I just need to hear that big picture 
big picture philosophy, big picture directional change. And then I need to see it, right? I need to see those next right things uh, when they actually have the opportunity to make those decisions. But I want to I want to hear from our listeners. And, you know, I think you've weighed in as well, Drancer, but I want to hear from our listeners specifically. What are those kind of next moves? What is the next right thing for you that you want to see uh, to kind of rebuild your confidence or start rebuilding your confidence in where the Canucks are going? And Jeff from Mission texts in, I really just want to see them blow it up. I want to have the excitement of at least hoping for the first overall pick. I know we're going to get disappointed because obviously, but just let me have it once. That's from Jeff from Mission. And I love that. So Canucks fan dreads, right? Like even as you're like, oh man, I would love the first overall pick. I know it's not going to happen though. You know, you know, how, how could you not know? Like, do you know, do you actually know the story of the Canucks first ever lottery loss? I know it in like broad strokes, but like. You know that it wasn't the only lottery that day, right? Yes, I do. Okay, yeah, because like two, you know, basically there was a coin flip to determine who would get to select between the high numbers or the low numbers, and the and the Buffalo Sabers won the coin toss. Then the first sort of um, the first sort of spin. Actually, there were three spins. The first spin was to determine who would have first waiver priority. A uh, big topic uh, talking point today uh, in the Vancouver market for whatever reason. But yeah, the, the, there was a spin to determine who would have waiver priority first, Buffalo or Vancouver, because neither team had played a game. And of course, Buffalo won that. Then Buffalo won the first pick in the expansion draft. And then they won the first pick in the entry draft. And that was, of course, what mattered. They got Gilbert Perot. So it's like they lost a coin flip and three spins at the very, like before ever playing a game, at their very first NHL meeting as a franchise, they lost three games of chance, four games of chance consecutively. Truly an inauspicious start. And of course, they haven't won anything since. And I mean, I get it. Look, I, I don't really buy into like, oh, this team will never have any luck or anything, right? Like, I I don't really buy into that because I know how can that's, you not? that's not, but it's not actually how it works. You know that. How can you You're not? a numbers guy. You know that's not actually how it yeah, works. Yeah, but sometimes you got to pay attention to the vibes. And like the Canucks have that black dog in them, you know, not, 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 not that dog in them from a sports franchise, but, but like the, the, the black um, cat in them, they have the black I, cat. No, in them. no. I was thinking about it from the perspective of the Grimm in Harry Potter. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Because we've already done the Disney references. I wanted to go yes, to we'll, the we'll HP branch out a little bit. territory. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Fair enough. I mean, I get it. I get, listen, here's what I'll say. I'll, I get the pessimism from Canucks fans, even if I don't fully buy into it, right? I completely understand that just as a self-defense mechanism more than anything, you kind of have to believe that so you don't, you're don't you not continually getting crushed by the lottery odds and the lottery balls uh, going against you. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Lots of responses coming in into you know, what you want to see from the Canucks. This one, very simple, from Dan the Wheelman. He says, what do I want to see from the Canucks? Just win, man. I mean, yeah, that would help. And look, here's the thing. Even if even if you want them to do a rebuild, right, and do an aggressive rebuild, and I would say an aggressive rebuild is, like, you're open to moving everyone other than Pedersen and Hughes and Demko. I, that, to me, would be a, an aggressive rebuild. Even if you want that, and I understand there's the carrot of Connor Bedard at the end of this year, potentially, or, or you know, another really, really talented player at the top of the draft – it still helps you if you can turn this around and win some games here, right? I understand it hurts your lottery odds, but if you actually have people, because if you're winning games, that means people are playing well, right? That means guys are putting up points. JT Miller's putting up points. Connor Garland is putting up points. Maybe Oliver Ekman Larson, Tyler Myers are turning it around and performing a little better. 
And even if you do want to do major surgery to this team, it's easier to do if your guys are actually playing well, right? If you're at the very bottom of the standings in January, that does not give you a strong position to deal from. So I don't think I don't think it's contradictory, Drancer, to want wins right now, but also a big different direction, right? Because it actually does make it a little easier. And I think it just gives the, the whole organization some breathing room to actually make those moves if they're able to pick up some wins and, and get out of this funk. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, they're going to get out of this funk eventually, but I just, like, I, I'm looking through even their underlying profile, and, I mean, one of the most disturbing things that I see in it is... 99.5 PDO, right? So it's like they actually haven't even been unlucky five on five, right? Um, the penalty kill numbers are okay, but it's hard to tell to what extent those numbers are the result of good play and to what extent those numbers are the result of them getting scored on so quickly that there's not the opportunity for teams to tee off with additional attempts, right? Like one thing that's amazing about the Canucks penalty killing numbers is they're actually uh, last in the league in terms of time spent shorthanded per game now that doesn't mean they're last in the league in terms of times shorthanded no or it's power because play the team's scoring 10 seconds into the power play correct <laughs> correct so it's like uh, the samples are still too small and the results are so extreme that it's sort of hard to wait um i i just sort of don't know that we know much about the Canucks PK beyond, you know, the obvious seams and glaring issues that we can see, issues that could be exposed even further now that the team's, you know, running out of some key penalty killers. Uh, and then the power play hasn't been producing enough. We know this. Um, it's looked good to me like three or four games in a row. So I, I do think it's just a matter of time there, but obviously I'm less confident about that once you remove Quinn Hughes from the mix, right? I do think the Canucks are probably easier to prevent from setting up, and I think we saw that a little bit against the Hurricanes. Five on four, once you lose the one-man breakout machine that keys everything for this team. Uh, the Hughes injury additionally has you know a pretty significant impact on the club's five-on-five -five form. Mm -hmm. um, and the team's shot attempt numbers look good, but as you zoom in, right, their expected goals numbers are worse than that. Their high danger chance numbers are worse than that. The extent to which they're being outchanced by defenders, uh, it's really tough. Like, you know, through the first five games, that first road trip anyway, it was like, okay, this team's underlying profile is there's things I'm concerned about, but it's not, you know, winless team through seven games quality right they're better than that and increasingly it's becoming softer now a game where you get trounced the way the Canucks did in the run of play by the Carolina Hurricanes this early in the season can make it look like that uh, so you know what what I kind of want to see tonight is just the Canucks put their put the pedal down a bit like forget the score forget the winless streak forget everything just just go out and control play for a few shifts like string together just some positive shifts just spend some time in the offensive end. Um, that's something that this team's just not doing without Pedersen on the ice, five on five. And it's really hard to believe that a team can turn this around if the key is, like, the goalie has to steal it or the power play has to become the Edmonton Oilers' power play or something unrealistic like that. Like, wh wh what can the Canucks do to sort of begin to, um, you know, get, <laughs> get some positive momentum going? Like, it starts with a heavy shift. 
It mm. starts with a heavy shift, mm -hmm. and then you layer another heavy shift on top of that, and then you layer another heavy shift on top of that. And by the end of the period, you've outshot your opponents by six or seven, and then you b build another period on top of that, and then another period on top of that. And then there's a bad bounce that goes against you, and you probably lose by one goal anyway because that's what happens when you're winless. Like, you know, the, but first you have to start earning it. Yeah. And the Canucks aren't, like, earning – their breaks. They're not earning their bounces. What I want to see is this team, win or lose, just come out and play well. Just come out and play well. At least do that. Put in an effort where win or lose, people will be able to say like, hey, you know, they should hold their head high. And not, not in the polite way that we talked about where it's like, you know, uh, I'm not seeing a lot of people to blame for this. They were just so overmatched the way we were talking about uh, after the Hurricanes game. You know, this is a Seattle team that the Canucks should be able to skate with, right? Like should be better then. Um, come out and at least try to prove it. Come out and show it. Yeah, That's what I want to see tonight. Yeah, and they've had a couple opportunities to do that this year, right? Like, I, I was saying the same thing about Philly. Come out and show that you're the better team. They, they Now, you thought they played better in the, in the final two periods there after really sleepwalking through the first, but I still never really saw what you're talking about, right? Which is the consistent heavy shifts where you're just really running the game and you're putting your stamp on it shift after shift. I mean, to even get a little more granular, right? They need somebody other than the Pedersen line to have a heavy shift at some point, right? Like, I'm not saying it hasn't happened, but it's been few and far between unless it has been that line. And yeah, so much, so often in NHL losing streaks, the team is, there's a, like, bad luck is a huge part of it, right? That, you know, if you lose eight in a row or nine in a row, typically you're getting some bad breaks along the way. And obviously the Canucks have had bad breaks, and you can point to individual examples, but. You know, based on how they've played, you'd probably say they should be like two, three, and two, something like that, right? So better, but not overwhelmingly so. It's not just a case of, oh, okay, they're they're fine. You know, the breaks just have to start to go their way. They really do need to improve uh, their level of play significantly. As you said, a good chance to do it against the Kraken tonight. Uh, more text coming in about what do you want to see in the here and now from the Canucks. Jeffro says, I want to see them improve the defense. Do what it takes to get a top four defenseman on the right side. Another one in, the, in that vein says, everyone is waiting to see a right-hand defenseman addition. It's what we've been wanting since before we got Tyler Myers. Unfortunately, we signed Myers and our management teams have dusted off their hands as if the job was done. And look, obviously, you look at this roster and you think, what do they need? Right-handed defenseman is going to be at the top of your list or very, very near the top of your list. Of course it is. At the same time, I think it would be a big mistake to prioritize solving that in the present, solving that right now, right? Because that's the kind of panic, oh man, you know, we weren't able to do it in the summer, now everything's going wrong, we have to go and find out a guy, find a guy who can play with Quinn Hughes right now. I think that's the type of thinking that gets you into making a mistake, whether it's, you know, targeting a player who's not on an efficient contract because he's actually available, targeting somebody who's a little bit older, maybe, you know, you bend your standards a little bit and you say, fine, we'll do it for this guy. I think that's a dangerous way of thinking. What I would like to see them do, and, you know, this is a process that's it's not going to play out all in the next month. It's going to be months and potentially even years, but beyond just finding the individual right-hand defenseman or two to actually, you know, bolster that top four they need to create potential avenues to acquiring those guys, right? Like, that's the bigger thing for me. Create the cap flexibility. 
get the assets, get the draft picks. Maybe there's a prospect that you can acquire, whatever it is, rather than saying that's the guy who's going to solve the right side of our defense and we're going to do whatever we can to go out and get him because our team is spiraling, create avenues so that in the future you can find efficient, you know, durable, reliable ways of solving that problem on your blue line. Preach! Preach, <laughs> Jamie! Oh, man! You Let's liked, go! You like that one, huh? Oh, do it again! Let's go! I'm, I'm like, I'm like disturbed by how much I agree with you. <laughs> Nail, nailed it! Nailed it! No, and that's why, you know, one thing to keep in mind, right? When, when we talk about a rebuild, like, what does it really look like? Right? Here's, here's, a, here's one exercise that I'd recommend for fans trying to decide if they can actually live through this, right? <laughs> if, you know, I don't believe that there's any doubt that Vancouver fans can tolerate a rebuild far more easily than they can tolerate whatever this last 10 years have been, okay? I have no doubt about that. But as a mental exercise, if you want to really understand what it looks like, go to catfriendly.com and sort the biggest contracts, like look at the contracts that are over six millions, six million dollars or more, and then sort them by the fewest number of points. Right? Look for the worst contracts in hockey. Okay, the worst contracts in hockey. Um, whether it's a Bobrovsky or a Jamie Ben or uh, like that level of bad. Okay, build a list of the worst contracts in hockey. Now imagine a world. Where because those deals are one year shorter than Oliver Ekman Larson's deal or two years shorter than Oliver Ekman Larson's deal or half the length of JT Miller's deal, bundling in a trade one of Vancouver's best players in exchange for that contract, okay, plus futures, plus, plus some futures, right? The way forward into a rebuild for the Canucks, unfortunately, because their foremost issue. Uh, in addition to the, to the lack of talent, in addition to the construction issues, um, in addition to the need to completely overhaul the blue line, is they've got too much money locked up too inefficiently for too long, right? The first step is going to have to be to clear the decks. And part of that might involve trading some of this team's best players, the absolute best players, their most valuable pieces, for bad deals. Right? Because what are teams willing to pay for? Clearly, they're not willing to pay for risky bets or guys that don't move the needle and have term and money attached to them. And that's the description of almost every asset that the Canucks hold. Right? What are they willing to pay for, though? Like, hey, what if you turn your $7 million of inefficient money into something really good? This is what the Canucks did with all of Reckman Larson and Garland, right? They traded $12 million in bad cap commitments for 17 million in slightly better cap commitments significantly better cap commitments it's just that it didn't make sense for the team a year out there's no doubt who won that deal right and it's not the team that got the two best players out of it right the canucks are basically going to be looking to do like reverse deals like that reverse deals like that that's got to be step one and it's going to be brutally painful but it's the only way forward in my view like i don't i don't see Basically, if you take that path, I still think you're probably only going to underperform what you'd get if you continued to rage against the dying of the light and try to sneak into the playoffs because anything can happen for the next three years. Like You're only going to underperform what you would have done if you stuck on this current path by something like 15, 20 points over three years, scattered across three years, right? Like, I don't even think the difference is going to be that significant. The only meaningful difference is that three years from now, 
three and a half years from now, you might actually have a chance of being good. Whereas the other way, continuing to do what we've done for the last decade, um, you know, the, the, the we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas approach, the, the only thing that guarantees is that this club is going to be right back here. Right back here. Like, not winless after eight games right back here, but facing the fact that they're not good enough and yet not bad enough to benefit from the structures in the NHL that tend to reward those teams and rather richly, I might add. Uh, lots more great texts coming in. Snoop the Dog texts in. Uh, instead of spending huge on a right-hand defenseman, I'd like to see management start signing uh, defense out of college. It can take longer for D to be NHL ready. They can be more hit and miss. Up the odds of signing the top rookies uh, out of college. That's from Snoop the Dog. And I think that's got to be part of it, right? Like this is It's very much a a no stone unturned approach here, right? You, I think you have to address, um, invest more draft capital in the blue line. You have to pursue those college free agents. You have to pursue uh, the European free agents. You have to do all of those things. And to be fair, you know, the, the management has talked about that as well, because again, as I said, you just have to give yourself, you have to give yourself a, a lot of different bets that could potentially pay off. And not all of them are, very few of them will, but you need to have those irons in the fire that could potentially turn out to be that key right-handed defenseman uh, that you need at some point down the line here. We got a lot of other ones coming in saying, uh, I want to tank for Bedard. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> and simply comes in another one that said, uh, I'm cheering for the Canucks to lose every game because I just want chaos. So that is definitely uh, a thought that is out there. Look, I get it. I just think... The other, as I said, the other dynamic with losing is that it just puts so much more pressure on the organization, and it's so harder to climb out of it when you're in this just endless slog of losing game after game. So I do think, purely to relieve the pressure, some wins could actually help point things long-term uh, in the right direction as well. Although, again, I completely understand uh, with the Connor Bedard talk out there. Yeah, that's uh, that's a pretty interesting one uh, to have as a carrot at the top of this year's draft. Uh, this is a good one. This might be a, a bigger topic for another time, but you made the Harry Potter reference, Trance. Somebody texts in, if you had a time turner from Harry Potter, what would you fix over the history of the Canucks? And he says it can't be game-related. So it can't be like they win game seven. It has to be an off-ice decision. What would you fix if you could go back in time and fix one thing from the history of the Vancouver Canucks? I mean, the problem with that is there are just so many potential options. There's so many potential options that make sense. Um, So many. I think uh, the short list would include the decision to offer sheet or the equivalent of an offer sheet, um, uh, Barry Patterson, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, the deal that ultimately costs them Glenn Wesley and um, Cam Neely. Mm -hmm. But even, even then, even then, the Canucks had the option of take using their first round pick, a 13th overall pick that year, with which they took the immortal Dan Woodley. Um, you know, the next year they s struggled again and then surrendered the fourth overall pick. So it's like even within the Cam Neely cluster, you'd probably prefer to use a time turner on that decision. That was a pretty bad one. Uh, the Gretzky call, the Canucks demanding for no reason at all that Wayne Gretzky decide that night before going to bed if he'd signed with the Canucks <laughs> or not. That was a pretty ridiculous one. I think you'd probably want to do over. Oh, on that. my goodness. That makes no sense at all. <laughs> And, you know, I, I mean, honestly, for me, one, one of them I think that would probably qualify would be the club's decision not to rebuild back in 2013, right? I mean, mm. 
I, I think that to me is a is a standout, particularly because a decade later, there's nothing here, right? There's nothing, no direction, no flexibility, no prospects, no hope, uh, no wins. There's just nothing. And I think if they'd been dedicated in 2013 and had changed direction when it was first recommended, you know, if they'd done four or five deals like the Schneider and Luongo deal instead of just those two, um, you know, with a management group that at the time was at the forefront of a variety of things, uh, I suspect the last decade would have been a lot more fun. And I wonder if the last couple of years of the Sedin's careers might have even seen us, you know, get to see them win another playoff series or at least play in the playoffs again. Um, you know, that to me is sort of standout. Those are those are sort of three that come to mind right off the hop. Uh, you know, the, the fact that. Uh, this market was deprived of a local guy who went on to be a Hall of Fame goal scorer, um, that it was so bungled that he really had his breakout season playing with the Bruins free agent signing to replace Pedersen, which was Thomas Gradeen, right? Just like the the layers of it are just so comically frustrating. The Gretzky call that prevented us from getting to see McGilney with Gretzky and Bure, right? And, and, and leads directly like that call – and the butterfly effect thereof leads us directly to Messier, right? Like mm -hmm. leads directly to Vancouver signing Messier. And then and then 2013 and, and this club's decision to waste a decade of our lives and the last five years of the Sedin's careers, um, you know, those are standout. Those to me are the three, um, you know, that, that I think Canucks fans should be shaking their heads about still. I love it. And again, that could be like a full show in the in the off season. You know, to take the time turner. What do you change? What are the moments you change from Canucks past? A couple more thoughts coming in here. This one unsigned says Demko is an amazing goalie. The Colorado just won with Darcy Kemper. Package Demko and start a true rebuild. He's the only value you have to begin the rebuild with. I don't really agree with that last part, but. Hey, I get it. You're in for an aggressive uh, rebuild. You got to explore all of those options. Danny and Brookswood says, uh, what I want to see if it's remotely possible to move off of JT Miller, make the trade. If we can get a seventh round pick for him, do it. It's not about not liking him. I just hate the long-term contract that will hamper us for years. And we even had somebody uh, text in Leaf Hater Steve, what he would change uh, if he had the, the Harry Potter time turner. And, and he said the signing of JT Miller. So, yeah, that one has gone south in a hurry, at least in the eyes of Canucks fans, uh, Drancer. But I don't know. I mean, we I don't want to get into it right now. We're, we're just about to end the show. It's way too way too many thoughts on that yeah. one and the potential of trading we, JT Miller. We'll we save that. We will we save that. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. I just looked up at the clock and I was like, nope, can't do that. We got to go. <laughs> well, we'll save it for our Harry Potter reference show, yes. which we'll use as a follow-up to our Disney moments exactly. reference show. Exactly. Hey, love, love doing the show with you. Great takes today. Great Disney wow. quotes, bud. Thank you. Killing it. Thank you. Killing what a, it. Uh, what what a what a mark of approval that is! I love to hear it. Uh, more great takes, always great takes coming up on the station. Of course, the Kraken and the Canucks in Seattle at seven. Pre-game coverage beginning at six, right here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet six fifty.